From Flourish DX, this is the Psych Health and Safety Podcast. With workplace mental health becoming a safety prerogative, this is the source of information on psychological injury prevention and health promotion. Hi, and welcome to the Psych Health and Safety Podcast. My name is Jason Van Shee, and I'm one of the hosts of the show. The aim of the podcast is to rapidly increase the knowledge and application of psychological health and safety in workplaces worldwide. To help with this, we have regular guests from around the world who are leading the way in this important area. But before I introduce our guest and topic for today, allow me to introduce my co-host, Joelle Mitchell. How are you today, Joelle? I'm a little nervous to say because Will might make fun of me. Will, yeah, um, our social media manager, if you could call him that. (laughs) Work experience kid, maybe, I don't know. That's, well, you know, maybe not for long if he keeps that up. (laughs) He should know who he's dealing with. He should, he should. Um, But, you know then he probably didn't know that he was being narked on either. So, Yeah, that's right. No, yeah. it's not good when your dad is uh, your boss. As no, well. yeah. no, no. Um, I'm, I'm good. I had a nice relaxing weekend. I've been reading a new book that I'm enjoying. So, um, yeah, feeling good. Yeah, terrific. What book is that? It is called One Damn Thing After Another. Sounds like right down your alley. Yeah, it's a bit yeah. like my life, except <laughs> there's more like time travel and dinosaurs and murder and stuff um, involved. So, yeah. None of that in my life, thankfully. Um, but um, I go to an independent bookstore mostly because it's the closest one to my house. But also um, the guy who owns it gives me really, really good recommendations on books. So he's like, oh, well, what do you like to read? And I'll give him a list of stuff that I'm into at the moment and he'll just go and like pluck something off the shelf and it's just delightful. So Yeah, great. Yeah. Yeah, well, I just got back from a week uh, family holiday for Easter and um, managed to get through two novels. So I very rarely read, as you know. Mm. And uh, it was, yeah, I really I really loved reading when I was a kid. And uh, yeah, it was good to get into a couple of good uh, fantasy fiction novels. Mm. Yeah. Yep. Mm. Good to unwind. Yes. Well, uh, this is a show not about reading books, but about no. psych health and safety. It so is. we should probably introduce our guests. I suppose. Yeah. So um, first of all, we've got two guests today. Uh, Dr. Joan Cahill is a research fellow and principal investigator at the Centre for Innovation in Human S- Systems at the School of Psychology at the Trinity College, Dublin, Ireland. And Paul Cullen is both an Airbus A320 captain and research associate at the college. Welcome to the podcast to you both. Hi, and, and thank you for thank you, having Jason. us, you, uh, Jason and Joelle. Yeah, well, uh, we've just experienced our first technical mishap with two people um, with outside the five kilometre radius, radius with both <laughs> answering the question at the same time. So we will get smoother, no doubt, as the podcast goes. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So the first thing that we like to ask, as you know, is about your favourite podcast. So I'll go to you first, Joan. What do you like to listen to? Well, I suppose being honest, I don't listen to a whole lot of podcasts. Um, you know, if I'm out for a walk, it's really silence um, or the birds. But sometimes I listen to Melvin Bragg on BBC uh, Radio 4. So the In Our Time show, which is podcast, and it's it's really excellent. Um, covers everything from philosophy to books to music. Um, and his guests are always really interesting. Good. And... Paul, what do you like to listen to? Uh, I'll be honest, I haven't been listening to a whole lot of podcasts uh, for the last year. Uh, I used to use my commute in and out to work as an opportunity to listen to podcasts. But the, o- the only podcast I've been listening to of late is actually this podcast. I came across it uh, through Peter Kelly. And uh, I've listened to every 
every episode. I found it absolutely fantastic. Uh, but before I came across you guys, I was listening to a lot of Todd Conklin, uh, pre-accident investigations. I don't know if you're familiar with that one. Yeah. Uh, the safety of work, obviously. And uh, I used to love actually listening to the first minute or two of the safety of work and find out which paper the guys are going to review. I'd go get that paper. I'd have a read of it. And then I'd realize how much of the paper I actually misunderstood when I listened to the two guys dissect the paper. And um, I'd also be a big fan of TED Talks. I like to do a lucky dip on TED Talks, just randomly pick one and listen to it for 10 or 15 minutes. And uh, Russell Brand, uh, Under the Skin, I find fascinating. I think Russell Brand is hilarious. He's an absolute genius in my mind, totally misunderstood. And then uh, another lesser known podcast I listen to a lot is the Work Well podcast. Uh, it's an Irish-based podcast uh, produced by one of my colleagues in Trinity College, a uh, guy by the name of Brian Crook. I'd well recommend the podcast to anyone. It's very focused on the secondary interventions and how to implement uh, meaningful strategies rather than your random acts of wellness into the workplace. Uh, so th that's basically my uh, my podcast that I listen to. Yeah, Good. yeah, terrific. And uh, you can definitely come back again. Yeah. Uh, Paul, if you, if uh, this is one of the regular podcasts that you listen to, that's, <laughs> that's great. In fact, Brian has already reached out to us and at some point we might be able to do a crossover episode with uh, with the two podcasts, which would be great. Oh, brilliant. Yeah. So um, tell us about your professional careers today, maybe starting with you, Joan. Okay. Um, it's been very positive, actually. <laughs> That's the first thing. Um, so um, my work is in the space of human factors, behaviour science and ethics. And I'm working at Trinity College in Dublin in the School of Psychology. And I've been there for the last 20 years, working across aviation, healthcare, um, road transport um, and various other areas. And um, that's really the main, the main areas of my research are looking at human issues, looking at the person. Um, so the person in the workplace, um, any aspects of the person in the system. Yeah, okay. Um, and, and what are some of the um, things that you have been doing in the past, Paul? Um, I mean, you're at the research assistants now, uh, at the college now, but where did you start? Uh, I started my flying career 23 years ago, uh, and for most of the last 23 years, I, I've just been a pilot. Uh, I've always been very inquisitive. I was always someone ever since I was a young child who would ask why, followed by another why, followed by another why. Uh, back in 2011, I got involved with the uh, Safety and Technical uh, Committee in the Irish Airline Pilots Association, and quite soon I took over that committee as Director of Safety and Technical. I was in that role up until 2013. And during that time, I worked quite closely with our peer support program. And I became quite alarmed at the number of guys who were coming to the, the peer support group with problems. But it wasn't just the number of guys. It was the type of problems they were coming with. Like I, I was of the opinion that we were cut from the same cloth as astronauts. So therefore, if these guys were psychometrically screened in the same way as I was, none of us should be suffering problems because we, we were special. We weren't just the general population. We were the chosen few who had the right stuff. And over the last number of years, I've actually come to realize that that's bullshit. None of us are special. So if there's any pilots out there and you think you're special, maybe now is the time to, to tune out because you're going to find this podcast very disappointing. <laughs> uh, and I started back in 2014 after I left the committee to do my own research, I was trying to find out why it was that some of these guys were struggling. Like, what was it? How were, how were they slipping through the net? 
and getting into the system where in my mind they probably shouldn't have been because because they were possibly flawed so how were we recruiting these guys that that were broken and over time i realized that they weren't the problem that they're actually the same as all of us and we all are susceptible to those problems and what we have in common is we're all working and living in this bubble and that within that bubble we've normalized deviant behavior and the the way in which pilots work is wrong and it's not natural and there's a lot of factors about how we work that's decimating our physical and our mental and our social health i started to try to do a literary review and I found that there was very little research, especially very little current research on airline pilots. There was a lot done on the military, but very little on commercial airline pilots. So I started, what I didn't realize at the time was my own preliminary organic field research. I spoke to over 100 pilots and asked them about their experience of being a pilot and what was it, I used to call it pains in the ass. What was it that was causing them a pain in the ass about the job? And I had a little notebook and I'd write in words and I started to see that certain themes were repeating stuff like uh, the irregular hours, working weekends, working long duties, difficulties getting leave during the summertime and the sedentary nature of the job. But I started seeing that there was a pattern developing. Now, at the time, I was working with Joan on a separate project, a human factors project, looking at autopilots and automation. And Joan knew I was interested in this, but neither of us really had any expertise in this area at the time. Uh, and then German wings happened. An airplane with 150 people on board crashed into the Alps. And it turned out that the co-pilot, who was seriously mentally unwell, deliberately crashed the airplane killing everyone and the European authorities went to great lengths to try prevent this kind of thing ever happening again and on foot of that three main rules were put in place that pilots would have to be psychometrically screened at the start of their career there would also have to be random alcohol and intoxicant testing and there would have to be peer support programs implemented but from the very start when that was announced I was thinking to myself that's not going to prevent pilots develop developing mental health problems that that's actually going to do more damage than good because it's a witch hunt. It's how do we how do we get the pilots who have problems and get them out of cockpits rather than how do we support the pilots who have the problems? So I fear that that would drive the pilots who have the problems underground and it would do nothing to prevent pilots from developing problems. And when I looked at how risk is managed in aviation in general, defied all logic what was been done around mental health and in aviation we use predominantly a mix of preventative and reactive risk measures now i've always compared mental health to mountains are you familiar with the cartoonist gary larson and the far side cartoons the satirical comics yeah there's yeah. a very good uh, cartoon that i've used in almost every presentation we've given and it's two pilots sitting in the cockpit they look out the window and they see a mountain goat in the cloud bank and one says to the other, hey, what's a mountain goat doing up here in the clouds? Obviously, they've no idea where they are. And I compare that analogy of mountains. Like when we think back to the 50s and 60s, airplanes were slamming into the sides of mountains at an alarming rate. They didn't bulldoze the mountains. What they did was they made sure the pilots knew where the mountains were. So they gave the pilots maps. And on the maps, the mountains were charted. And then that still wasn't enough. 
because the pilots knew where the mountains were, but they didn't know where they were in relation to the mountains. So then they beefed up the navigation on the, uh, on the, on the airplanes. So the pilots knew where the mountains were and they knew where they were in relation to the mountains. So the mountains are a hazard. And that still wasn't enough. And then in the 70s and 80s, we introduced technology onto the aircraft called ground proximity warning systems. This is the technology that screams at the pilots, like too low, too low, terrain, terrain. And once that was introduced, that was a game changer. There's been very, very few incidents involving aircraft flying into mountains since then. Well, unintentionally flying into mountains. Uh, and I think we need to identify the mountains in pilots' lives, the aspects of the job that potentially can cause them a problem and give them effectively a map and say, these are where the mountains are. You need to fly away from them. And at the last resort, if you can't fly away from them, you have your GPWS, your ground proximity warning system, which is the pull-up, pull-up, but that's the peer support program. That's the alcohol and toxicant testing. That's the psychometric screening. And I would say that where are the measures been put in place? The maps. Who is highlighting the pilots, what the hazards of the jobs are and what measures they can, they can put in place. So it's all tertiary interventions. You have your EAP, your peer support, your random drug testing. There's no primary interventions. There's no secondary interventions. And that's what I'm trying to do. And I think of the quote from uh, Desmond Tutu, where he says that we need to get to a stage where we stop pulling people out of the river and we have to go upstream and find out why they're falling into the river in the first place. And that's not been done. And the focus of our research for the last four or five years has not only been to look at uh, susceptibility and suffering it's to look at resilience so why are some pilots doing okay because at the end of the day the vast majority of pilots are actually coping like we are coping and I think coping is the key word and that's where Joan has really been focusing and looking on what it is that allows some pilots to cope yeah, and I, I suppose one of the things is, as, as Paul mentions, the German wings disaster. I mean, it's a, it's a huge tragedy. Uh, but one of the problems that arose from this was not just the reactive response, but in terms of how the problem of well-being um, was framed. Um, so, you know, the problem of well-being was framed as avoiding these kinds of scenarios in the future. And actually, when we looked at and interviewed pilots and surveyed pilots, you know, we've actually, um, you know, developed an evidence map which suggests that the problem is multi-leveled and you know there's factors both at an individual and an organizational level that contribute either to positive well-being or mental health problems um, or burnout um, and, and these different kinds of things and you know you can't just focus at the individual you do need to look at the organizational level and beyond that you you certainly need to look at the regulator because you know I suppose um, in their defense, some organizations are doing more or less in the space of well-being, but many of them are just responding to the requirements that the regulator has laid down in terms of fitness for work. So, you know, and so the regulator has a role and responsibility here as well. And equally, so does society and government. So it's in terms of how we look at the problem of well-being more generally. Um, and this has been a big part of our research. We've actually learned a lot about coping and coping mechanisms. And unfortunately, um, you know, with, with the German Wings disaster, and I mean, there's 
evidence for other kinds of you know negative outcomes not necessarily as severe um, where um, people have looked at um, mental ill health and they haven't necessarily looked at promoting positive well-being and flourishing which we know that you're interested in um, and so the conversation needs to be slightly different it needs to include different dimensions so as Paul mentions we need to look at promoting positive well-being we need to also look at preventative or proactive approaches um, and then we need to look and help those who are suffering and we know with COVID now there's quite a few people suffering, particularly those who have lost their jobs or are experiencing financial instability. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, no, I like a lot of what you're, you're saying there, both of you. Um, and I really like that analogy around, you know, um, when it comes to mental health, the pilots don't necessarily have the maps of the mountains or know their proximity to the mountains either. So there is that real focus on both the tertiary, like you say, the reactive approaches and the individual approaches without looking at the systemic uh, or workplace design factors that are contributing to poor mental health. Yeah, and a big, a big part of that what we're increasingly looking at now is culture you know, which is the bedrock of social interaction and behaviours. So um, we have some interesting statistics arising from our research. Um, one, one is that only one in four um, aviation workers would willingly disclose a mental health problem. So this is partly a cultural issue um, at an organisational level, as well as, you know, where you look at stigma around mental health. Um, um, so these things do need to be addressed. And the organisation has a responsibility in terms of setting the tone and the behaviors for people um, and they are followed so if you feel that you know disclosing um, a mental health issue is going to become a problem for you both professionally and interpersonally with your colleagues um, well then you're less likely to do that if you feel supported and you feel that the organization cares about your well-being and um, is interested in gathering data about uh, challenges that are people are experiencing so that they can pr improve organizational processes whether it's improving rostering uh, well then you're more likely to disclose it and that stands to reason mm -hmm. so you've um you've given us a little bit of a summary of what you're working on at the moment can you go into that in a bit more detail sort of your your methodology and and what you've been finding so far yeah we can uh, and it, it's also important to point out it's not just mental health that we're looking at uh, we've used the biopsychosocial framework uh, to create what we call the lived experience model of a pilot. And we, we looked at the three factors, your physical, your mental and your social health, because like it's, it's not even just the mental health of the pilots. It's also their families and how would a fact how being a pilot or an aviation worker affects uh, those around us. Uh, and as a father of two teenage girls, it particularly worries me uh, the, I came across a paper there a couple of years ago, and in it they described how teenage daughters of shift workers are at a heightened risk of developing depression. That horrified me, and I think it should also horrify a lot of my colleagues. Uh, I don't know whether there's any evidence base, but there's certainly anecdotal evidence. I look at a lot of my colleagues who seem to have daughters rather than sons, and I don't know why it is that pilots seem to have a higher number of female children than male children. There's a joke in the industry that we call ourselves sissy mickeys in that we're not able to spawn a son. It's normally a female. So if we're all shift workers and we're producing more females than males, that doesn't bode very well for the mental health of our children. Uh, but to, to get back to how we started developing the research, that diary that I had, I brought that to Joan 
And we created what we call this lived experience model. It's a massive mind map of, we looked at how uh, work-related, sources of work-related stress resulted in health outcomes, but possible pathways for health outcomes. And we were also assisted by a professor of clinical psychology, uh, Dr. Keith Gaynor. And the three of us constructed this model and then we held a series of workshops with pilots where we tried to validate this model and also to see how it relates to safety. And in those workshops, we came up with six possible scenarios. The most common scenario was where pilots tended to be doing okay. There was no health implications. And as a result, there was no safety implications. And we believe that that was the most common. And then the least common was the German wings type scenario, the exceptionally rare, but the highly catastrophic events that get all the attention and got such focus from EASA, the European regulator, bringing in all those rules that I spoke about. Uh, they're exceptionally rare. And to put it into context, like German wings wasn't the only deliberate destruction of an aircraft. I've counted back since the early eighties and I found roughly eight similar accidents but in that same time period, there was 1,600 fatal accidents. So that's 99.5% of accidents were not caused deliberately. But we do know that 80% of those 99.5% of accidents had a human factors element in it. So we ask, well, what was the human factors element? What was it that caused the human error? And we would argue that we can't estimate the percentage, but there has to be a significant number that were caused by pilots' state of mind or their mental health. So we feel that we need to look at the broader level of suffering, the more common suffering, not the person who's seriously distressed and is going to deliberately destroy an airplane, but someone who's coming to work with baggage, who's struggling. And those scenarios, the first one I said, that was the one we reckoned was most common. However, our data now suggested it mightn't actually be. That the next scenario was people who are possibly struggling with some sort of health issue. It could be a little bit of anxiety, a bit of depression, a bit of back pain, but it doesn't have a safety implication. The third one was where someone does have a problem and it has the potential to cause a safety issue, but generally it's picked up by, the mistake is picked up by their colleague. And then the fourth and the fifth relate to where people's health issues are so bad that they've withdrawn from work. So there's no real safety implication. But we argue that rather than looking at that sixth scenario, the final one where people deliberately destroy aircraft, you need to look at the third one where people's health is affecting their performance because our well-being, whether it's physical or mental well-being, it is a performance shaping factor and it does affect how we perform in the cockpit. And there could be a day where something gives and that mistake that I make or one of my colleagues makes is just not picked up and it does lead to a fatal accident. And we believe that those 99.5% of accidents some of those could have been caused by scenario six. And that's where we think the focus needs to be now. After those series of workshops, sorry, Joan, do you want to cut in there? Yeah, no, just to say, and I think it might be of interest to your listeners. Um, so depending on the area that you work in, I mean, you know, your listeners may be most familiar with occupational health and safety, but it particular feature of our methodology is we're taking a human factor systems approach and it blends aspects that you would look at typically in occupational health and science. Uh, but we're, we're looking 
you know, across process, culture, training, technologies, people, uh, values, um, and we're taking this systems approach. And as part of that, we're looking at, you know, problem framing. And initially, initially our research, as Paul mentions, the interviews that he, he undertook with pilots, and then the, the workshops that we did, uh, we focused on pilots, and then we moved out to focus on other aviation workers. And then we start to build a kind of systems level um, and talk to, you know, people who are responsible for safety management in airlines and people involved in training and people involved in procuring new technologies or um, gathering evidence. Um, and it's to get this kind of multi-stakeholder perspective. And I think this is, you know, the problem of, 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 of improving well-being for aviation workers and building um, a well-being and um, um, safety culture is that you need to take different stakeholders' perspectives into account. You can't just simply focus on individual groups of workers. You know, you need to look across the organisation in different roles and some people have different and, and conflicting goals and needs. So it needs to, you know, any kind of evidence uh, picture and any kind of solution needs to look at the different sides and I think that's something that we've been doing um, and I hope that it makes it more in, amenable and accessible um, because it's a, it's a rich evidence set then you know and it's multi-stakeholder and it's across the systems perspective so it's not just looking at the worker level you know um, and I think it's important for people to understand that um, and I think I imagine at the moment lots of aviation organizations are feeling even more nervous about problems of managing health and well-being um, and this doesn't even include the thorny issues around mental health just general um, health and well-being uh, with staff that are quite depleted that are um, you know on reduced wages with such uncertainty to the future so it's important to see that we, we, we actually are looking at the different perspectives you know um, and uh, that these are being factored and taken into consideration and we're we're interested in understanding why a safety manager looks at health and well-being in a certain way what are the barriers to addressing well-being as a risk in a safety management system why is it difficult to communicate about these kinds of risks and make changes to rostering you know so it's it's getting at, at this level now the lived experience is where it needs to start and you know the lived experience and this comes from phenomenology um, and area philosophy where you look about how being in the world and what it's like to be in the world in our case we're looking at being in the world as the homework interface and the experience of the job and many of the factors that we looked at are very much um similar to what um typically in um uh, occupational health and safety you look at psychosocial factors but we have ex we were extending it because a lot of these factors interrelate with physical health factors um, and then you also have to look at, at, at individual differences and people's coping abilities and you know in some of them in the work system models that are out there and they I mean they do look at you know a person's resources to cope with you know job demands um, so not just um, the organizational resources, the person's individual resources. And we've seen evidence of, of, of variability there. And we need to understand, well, you know, how can we enhance people's own resources, but also how can an organization provide better resources and support uh, their workers? Um, and how can organizations be supported in transforming to this new way of doing things? Because we can't just expect organizations to make these leaps, a massive cultural leaps, massive leaps in terms of how they you know, a humane reaction and treatment of, of, of well-being and mental health. Uh, they need to be supported too, you know, and it's a journey. That's really interesting. And I'm, I'm 
um, pleased with, I guess, the breadth um, of focus that you're taking in your research and that you're not just um, sort of honing in on just the pilots themselves and their um, their psychological state, but you're actually looking at them as one component of a of an overall system that's you know that that is a complex adaptive system, um, being Absolutely. the aviation industry. And I think um, yeah, framing framing that within that context is um, is really important. I mean, we have talked a little bit about um, human factors perspectives on this podcast, and that's my background as well. Um, we had um, Tim Marsh on. Um, recently, so he was talking about his uh, blue pie model, um, which probably aligns sort of uh, fairly closely with um, what Paul was just talking about in terms of, um, you know, how um, how impaired a pilot might be um, from a from a distress perspective and how that impacts on on performance overall. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's, there's, there is lots of positives in some of the research that we've been doing. Um, and I, I think uh, we're very keen to, to, to look at both the positives and the negatives. Um, from both our surveys that we've done, uh, both the first survey was in 2018 and 19, and uh, it had uh, 1,050 and, and, and respondents, and the second had over 2,000. And in both cases, we found that aviation workers, initially the first survey was with pilots, but the second was with a range of aviation workers, 60% are using um, adaptive coping strategies, you know, which is really positive and they are practicing resilient and healthy behaviors um, and their organizations uh, need to embrace this and support this, you know, um, but we found other things that are, are quite alarming, particularly since COVID, we found that 92% of aviation workers are looking for supports, but only 23% have received supports. So there certainly is a problem with the well-being culture with aviation organizations at a time when there's a profound need for assistance and support this very crucial time and this assistance isn't being provided so that does that 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 is quite alarming um, and we've also found that you know of those organizations i mentioned 23 percent that are providing supports a very small number um only um 24 percent are availing of those supports so the actual supports that when they are provided aren't actually meeting the need uh, so we need to look at well, what is the best way to provide support um, and that support to um, promote positive well-being, but also uh, to um, support those who are suffering and experiencing uh, changes in their life that um, are affecting their health and well-being. And also organizations need to understand, well, what, what they de- need to do to change. So there, if you like their service offering in terms of EAPs and then whether they have peer support or any kind of assistance systems, are, are they actually working and are they being used? And in what way do they provide benefits and how could we enhance the benefits? You know, because there is a certain amount of appetite. There is some, some systems at play that are there. So how can these be augmented to actually meet the need? Yeah. Yeah, no, we're particularly interested in this podcast on one element of your research, which is around the design of work and psychological hazards, if you like. So um, obviously the pandemic, and we'll talk more about the effects of the pandemic on um, uh, on psych hazards and, and, and risk within the aviation industry in a moment. But historically, what are some of the psych hazards that uh, are most prevalent within the airline industry? Uh, I'll take that, if that's okay, Jason. Uh, Traditionally, the, the main hazards would have been associated with, with shift work and the, the, the nature of the job, the fact that we, we fly long flights. Like, unfortunately, 
the Pacific Ocean, the Atlantic Ocean, we can't make them, we can't bring them together. And airplanes can only fly so fast. So long duties, jet lag, it's just part and parcel of the job. We can't get rid of that. But there are some factors that we can. And uh, in our 2018 study, in which we surveyed over a thousand pilots, we asked them to identify sources of work-related stress that they believed were negatively impacting on their health or worsening existing health issues. And the most common one uh, was irregular hours. Now, unfortunately, we can't do much about that. Like 66% of pilots complained about irregular hours. But as I said, that's the nature of the job. If we have an issue with that, we're in the wrong job. Mm. The next one at 56% was divergence of values between management and staff. That certainly can be addressed. After that, at 56% was antisocial hours. Once again, can't do much about that. At 54%, difficulties accessing fresh food and eating processed food the whole time. That can certainly be addressed. 53% of people complained about uh, long duties. Once again, long haul flights, we can't make them any shorter. Roster uncertainty at 52%, that can be addressed. 49.6% of pilots complained about lack of annual leave when they wanted it, that they couldn't get holidays when their kids were off school because that's when everyone wants to go on holidays so pilots need to fly. The airlines could easily just hire enough pilots that we could also get holidays during the summer. Uh, at 42% was lack of engagement. That can be addressed. The changing nature of the job, 42%. Well, th that, that's probably a little bit more difficult to change. Uh, time away from home was raised by 38% of pilots. And 28% of pilots complained of increased responsibility while authority and uh, support was reducing. So there are factors that can be addressed. They're within the control of the organization. Uh, we've mentioned depression and burnout, or sorry, depression and anxiety and suicide. But what hasn't been mentioned is burnout. And in our study in 2018, we measured levels of burnout. And 80%, that's 80%, four out of five pilots met the threshold for moderate burnout. But we saw a, a positive correlation that when stuff like, we looked at the 13 factors that the Canadians have identified in their standard, organization, culture, uh, workload, you, you know the 13 factors. We looked at all 13, every single one, there was a direct relationship. When those factors improved, the levels of burnout reduced which demonstrates that the airlines can, they can handle this. This mm. can be solved. It's, it's not impossible. So there, there is a role that the organizations can play. Now, we also saw the role that the pilots can play. And like not every pilot was playing their part. Uh, if you think of the Swiss cheese model, we look at sleep as been one layer. So pilots who focused on getting good sleep, Pilots who focused on getting a reasonable amount of exercise each week and pilots who focused on having a good diet and also pilots who had a sense of purpose and a sense of meaning in their life, they had a much better chance of not struggling with depression. So the pilots have a role to play, but the organizations also have a role to play. And like a lot of things in aviation, it's a joint responsibility. Yeah, and that's something we talk about frequently on the podcast, the shared responsibility model. Mm -hmm. Um, and as we've discussed at length, uh, a lot of the responsibility is just put on the individual at the moment and the workplace or employer not taking enough responsibility for the things like you say, which are directly within their control. 
Um, yeah. And um, yeah. it's interesting yeah, that I researchers think- like yourself have to go and find out this stuff because I, I doubt that there'd be many um, airline companies who would actually be brave enough at the moment to do this sort of investigation themselves. I mean, it's definitely something that we've seen, like, you know, there are uh, people concerned that if they ask the question, then they have to do something, right? Because they're going to find the source of the problem. But like you say, a lot of them, it's not like they don't cost a lot. There's a lot of low hanging fruit there for organizations to address. Yeah, I, I, I think I, there I, is. I mentioned the Canadian months. standards. I, I mentioned the Canadian standards. At- I spoke to some of my colleagues in some of the major airlines in Canada, assuming that they'd have this stuff sorted. And they said, so the Canadian what? They've never <laughs> heard of the Canadian standards. Yeah. Uh, it's, it, it, yeah. There's still a lot of um, obviously competence and communication uh, that we need to build up. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, Joan. Yeah. But I think in terms of this education as well on both sides, so with the responsibilities that we say, so organizations and individuals have responsibilities, you know, organizations actually need to see that there's some things that they can do, that there's some areas that they can intervene in that will have positive outcomes, you know, so whether it's reducing burnout um, or the experience of stress or improving the overall lived experience and well-being. Um, and that the, these aren't insurmountable and that they, you know, and this will be the start of, of, of improving improving the kind of relations between staff and management, you know, um, and equally um, individuals need to understand, you know, that, that their role and a funny thing that we've wondered when we've been collecting evidence, and I've often thought about this, so we've asked people in, in each of our surveys, you know, about coping strategies, and we've, we've, we've given examples, um, and sometimes it isn't obvious to people that actually what they're doing is a coping strategy, you know, so, you know, you're feeling stressed, you go for a walk, you know, or, um, but if you actually understand that that actually delivers benefits um, so continue to do that 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 is something that's positive you know that we sometimes do things unconsciously and unknowingly and we may not even be aware of uh, you know of of the the direct relationship between health benefits and um chat having a chat with a friend so this education piece um so the things that aviation workers can do for themselves they're likely already doing it's just to enhance them or to build routines around them or to continue to do them so it's that kind of health education and health promotion piece as well um, and that's not to shift the emphasis off organizations because i think the evidence that we have at the moment is aviation workers are doing a lot organizations are doing very little um, and both parties should not be feeling powerless because there are op- really straightforward opportunities for both parties to this problem you know and um, the regulator is slightly different because the regulation is part of this problem too um, and one thing that I would be really interested to do is, and we can talk about this again, is looking at gathering evidence using technologies and making information about well-being, de-identified information available to the regulator. So they actually see what's going on, because I think the regulator needs to understand this too, not just organizations um, and not just workers um, to really understand the, the scope of this and um, what's that, what factors are at play. So when they look at, you know, their recommendations around peer support and and you know preventing maladaptive behaviors like um substance abuse you know and alcohol and drugs that there's other things that they should be looking at and equally our medical examiners should be you know coaching um aviation workers particularly those at the you know in safety critical roles to practice stress management activities you know to engage in healthy behaviors and maybe to gather an evidence base for themselves to see well what kinds of behaviors work for people who you know are involved in shift work who have these particular sources of work-related stress that make certain types of healthy lifestyles 
difficult to maintain or require a certain level of balance or require a bit more effort. You know, like if you could wake up each day and have someone to nudge you to say, right, this morning, Joan, I think you've got 10 minutes. Why don't you do some meditation? Mm-hmm. Or this morning, Joan, you're going to have a very long day and you had very little sleep last night. You know, if you did a personal assistant. Now, we don't all have people to do this first, but potentially we can use artificial systems and technologies and gather information and learn about people's behavior to provide this kind of supportive assistant function to get the right behavior out of people. And equally, this kind of information piece could be used by organizations to learn about the the culture that's going on, to learn about um, the social and health behaviors of their staff and where they need supports and what the lived experience is like. You know, we the 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 the, the maps that we developed of the lived experience um, you know, are are universal, it seems, for most aviation workers. And I think they could translate quite well to frontline health workers, you know, to um lots of different um, uh, professions, but particularly those where there's, you know, less latitude in terms of managing your roster and your schedule and less control and less autonomy, which we know is a, is a you know, a, a psychosocial risk, if you like. Um, and I think that if you were to look at that and then look at, well, where, where that map and what can the organization do? You know, um, there's so much to learn from the lived experience um, and there's there's so much that could be improved. So there's a great opportunity. So, you know, although it may sound that we're saying, you know, there's, there's you know, there's suffering and these areas aren't being addressed. We actually, the story is also that there is, it is available to organizations to change this. And it's, 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 it's not that complex. Having said that, I think looking at well-being risk within a safety management system is a little bit more complex and looking at how you use evidence to change things and to manage operations. And I mean routine operations um, because there's um, that affects the bottom line and it affects, um, you know, profit and decisions around, you know, uh, is someone, you know, working today or not, you know, um, and these kinds of things. So if you really want to invest in your workers' quality of life and the home work interface, you know, there is an implication there. It's, It's going to cost you, you know, but then the result is you have engaged staff you know you have staff with less burnout you know and they're not exhausted they're more likely to go the extra mile they're also more likely to engage in adaptive behaviors because we've seen a relationship between staff who are valued and adaptive behaviors um, and they're more likely to tell you when there's a problem so you know to avoid presenteeism and um, and also better health reduce absenteeism you know and these are all things that companies care about because it affects their bottom line it affects money and they're interested in money they're interested in health but they're very interested in money well i would argue in aviation they're not really interested in health uh, and <laughs> that culture needs to change uh, one of your guests a couple of weeks back clive lloyd spoke about knuckle draggers and the impact of an employer's actions and attitudes towards their staff uh, what doesn't help is when we have CEOs who publicly call out their pilots as a bunch of glorified bus drivers, which has happened. Uh, I'm not going to mention any names. Uh, what also doesn't happen is when senior managers address their cabin crew and tell them that in terms of a career, they can forget about it, that the role of a cabin crew is a gap year job for gap year students. Uh, now, thankfully, when Sully landed his aircraft in the Hudson, he didn't have three gap year students in the back of the aircraft. 
In fact, he had three cabin crew who between the three of them had over 100 years experience of being cabin crew. And it was that life experience that got all those passengers out of that aircraft alive. Sully put them into the river, but they got them out of the aircraft safely. So I think how we address and how we treat our staff that impacts safety and the culture needs to be looked at. And as we know, culture eats strategy for breakfast. And in that fight, downward facing dog doesn't stand a chance. You know, we cannot treat these problems with, you know, banana and yoga. You know, you put this guy into aviation, he's gonna struggle too. You know, like we need meaningful supports and not random acts of wellness. Uh, and that, that's not happening. Like recipes for chicken and lentil soup, but just makes no difference. We need to look at the factors, the ones I mentioned uh, addressed in the Canadian standards, the type of stuff that's going to be addressed in ISO 45003. That's desperately needed in aviation now. Yeah, we're working and um, doing some research alongside some great colleagues in the um, European Aviation Safety Authority and uh, they've developed a lot of new messaging for aviation workers and you know one aspect of the messaging is saying that you know well-being isn't about um, you know fruit bowls and yoga <laughs> and you know it's really good messaging because it communicates the purpose that well-being needs to be built into everything the organization does and equally what people do and in terms of how they act so whether they disclose issues so it needs to be embedded and if you think about that word embedded what does it mean it means right in there it's part of everything it's not alongside and that's challenging but that's what it needs to be and this issue with culture you know people run away from culture because they say everything is culture so we can't change culture well yes you can change culture and the first thing that needs to be change is reporting you know disclosure and um, one of the interesting things that we found is that colleagues you know are a huge source of support for other aviation workers because they know what it's like so your partner may care for you and have all the best intentions but they don't walk in your shoes because they're not doing your job so they don't really understand what it's like in the juggling you know they experience no doubt the consequences um, your job has for the homework interface as do the family and Paul mentioned that researcher and daughters of, of, of pilots who are, are of, of shift workers who are, you know, um, experiencing um, higher levels of depression. So they do experience it. But we, we need to look at that, you know, and shifting culture and shifting reporting and colleagues providing a source of support. So how can we enable that beyond peer support where there's more open discussion? And one of these things that we're looking at is the culture in terms of briefings, briefings in the, you know, whether it's a cockpit or with cabin crew, where you can put your hand up and say, you know, I've, I've had a really tricky week you know and I've doing research around culture across different um organizations and industries so in healthcare actually equally the culture is pretty appalling in terms of you know you expect health workers to you know who are all about protecting health to talk about their well-being and if they're having a bad day and they don't so this is not new you know this this is people tend to not disclose these things but an open atmosphere and, and you know briefing around this helps people support each other and it's that's support and we find this where you ask about well you know how does work related stress and well-being issues affect safety it's that support which protects safety 
So, you know, that if you know that your colleague isn't doing so well, or even if you don't know, but you sense something, you're kind of unconsciously acting to help them, or there's an extra level of oversight. And we need that in operations. But going back to the point of it being embedded, so it needs to be embedded in rostering. It needs to be embedded in the source of work-related stress that Paul identified, you know, better food, these kinds of things that can easily change. So well-being is in everything. And there's some things like long-haul flights that, yeah, you can't change. But maybe you can look at, you know, it's you can't address every source of stress, but those ones that you have control over, well, that gives you an opportunity. And actually, if some other sources of stress are um, alleviated or addressed, well, then maybe you can cope better with the ones that are less likely to change, you know? So if you feel there's a culture of support, well, then that helps you cope. Um, and I think we've seen this in, you know, um, psychological safety climate surveys. Uh, there's evidence that where, you know, the, the psychological or the safety uh, climate is good, that, you know, uh, there's performance is better, safety is better, colleagues feel more supported, colleagues are more likely to support each other. So all these kinds of things we want for safety outcomes, not just for well-being outcomes. Obviously, well-being is at the center, but we do have to look at those safety outcomes as well and look at the kind of big picture. But I think just to finish on that, uh, culture will only change from one direction, and that's from the top. And yeah. There's too many airlines that are afraid to speak about mental health. Like I, I know of cases where the word mental health, depression, anxiety, they're not allowed to be used. Fluffy words like well-being are used instead. So like mental health in those institutions is a dirty word. And that's why in those organizations, the silence, people aren't talking about it. That's why in so many airlines, uh, the uptake of peer support programs and EAP is in the single digit percentages. That's why in those airlines, approximately uh, three out of every four staff won't disclose a mental health issue. So that conversation, that culture needs to start from the top. I was very encouraged earlier this year. I was actually gobsmacked, to be honest, not just encouraged, I was floored when I read that the CEO of British Airways, uh, an Irish man called Sean Doyle, uh, he came out and he said that together we can end mental health discrimination. Today, British Airways has taken part in the Time to Talk Day because we know that just one small conversation can make a big difference. That was the man at the top. Later that day, his chief pilot, his director of flight operations, Alistair Bridger, came out and made a similar statement. So that, that statement is profound to his pilots, as opposed to silence from so many other organizations that just say nothing, you know, push it to the corner. We don't want to talk about that. So the culture needs to change. Otherwise, everything that we've spoken about is pointless. Yeah, absolutely right. Um, yeah, so and it, it does it does put it up to that, leaders to, to to change and to to it's not just to have the appetite, but to to walk the talk. So they too need to, you know, not just say that as far as they need to speak about their 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 own challenges, you know, and um, be authentic. Um, and uh, you know, British Airways excellent example, but there's few of them. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And that's, I guess, um, that's sort of leading the way then and, and setting the example for, for other mm -hmm. airlines. So it will be interesting to see what happens in the future and whether other airlines um, sort of take on that, um, almost that challenge that, that British Airways have, have thrown down then in, in relation to mental health. I'd like to explore a little bit more, if we can, the relationship between um, psychological distress and flight safety. Paul, you spoke about that um, a little bit earlier. Could you go into a bit more detail about that for us? Uh, 
Yeah, I, I don't have much else to say other than what we said that uh, I think the focus is wrong. The focus currently is on the prevention of another German wings type event, which really it's so rare. It's so exceptionally rare. Yet when you have a situation where 80 percent of pilots potentially are meeting the threshold for moderate burnout, when you have a situation where uh, I have the figure here in front of me, uh, about 25 percent at the moment of pilots are meeting the threshold for clinical depression, that has to have an impact on safety. Now, I would like to point out that those figures on depression, they're not all that far from the general population. It's within one or two percent, but 80 percent of pilots meeting the threshold for moderate burnout. And the fact that we know that burnout is more a systemic issue, it's more caused in the workplace than outside of work. That's where my concern would be. Yeah. We also have, so when we looked at, we have burnout, we also have exhaustion and um, disengagement. 85% are meeting the threshold for moderate disengagement. So disengagement affects, you know, whether you follow procedures and an and overall procedural compliance. It also affects whether you support your colleagues and take an interest in your colleagues. Um, you know, it affects communication behaviours, whether you report um, near misses, all these things that we know are important from a safety culture perspective, which contribute to safety levels. So it's that kind of systems perspective as well. Um, the other thing that I would say is, you know, the, the question is, you know, you know, if you look at well, how, why does or how does you know work-related stress or well-being challenges affect safety? We also want to find out well, how does positive well-being enhance safety? And this needs to be asked, you know. And we we have evidence to say that the, the flip side, you know. And I think that's where you know where in terms of mindset and attitudes, that's where you know. British Airways are getting a right in terms of looking at this because if you can actually promote positive well-being and promote discussion around well-being, including well-being challenges, well then you can say, well, we're right, we're trying to enhance safety and we're trying to enhance well-being to, to build safety. And good well-being delivers benefits across the board. You know, so it's this again, it's this this framing it negatively um, and equally not looking at the benefits of uh, of coping um, and supporting your workers and the benefits of disclosure and the benefits of promoting psychological safety and and, and healthy discussion around well-being and challenges. Um, so, you know, going back to those statistics of, you know, one in four only willing to oh, that would only willingly disclose a, a mental health issue to an employer. Having said that, we know around 68% will, will seek help. So they're just not seeking help from their organizations. And you know, I've, I've thought about this quite a bit as to, you know, what is the role of organizations? I mean, you know, if you have a problem, who, who should you be talking about your problem? And obviously some health problems impact upon performance. So of course the organization needs to know, um, but they need to know in a way that is going to enable a constructive conversation to support someone to keep them working. Because you actually don't want people off work or not working. You want people to continue to work um, and to be enabled by an experience where they have disclosed and got support. And that's really where I think, you know, um, employers' priorities should be, you know, about promoting well-being and enabling these conversations and, and walking the talk in terms of embedding well-being in, in everything in operational and organizational processes. I, I spoke a little while ago about the fallacy of the right stuff and how we, we believe that pilots should have the right stuff. However, I do believe it's possible to 
to cultivate and nurture the right stuff in pilots. And when you think of Darwin and the survival of the fittest, it's not the strongest who survive. It's those who adapt best to their environment. And this abnormal environment that pilots have to work in, of which some of the factors can't be changed, we can, by identifying where the hazards are and you know, enabling our pilots and equipping them with the right skills to adapt to that environment and to thrive and to flourish in that environment. And I, I think that's where we now need to look at and how do we give our pilots the right stuff to operate in this abnormal environment so that foreseeable harm is prevented? And I think if we can do that, we can tie up well-being with improving flight safety. Yeah, no, I totally agree. And there's definitely that that combined piece, right, working on the individual and their ability to adapt and cope to less than ideal situations, which are often outside of anyone's control. Like you say, you can't uh, reduce the, the the duration of long haul flights, unfortunately. Um, but then we also need to look at the employer's side and what they can do to address systems that might be causing uh, preventable work-related stress. Um, but I guess some of the things we've been talking about, or the majority of the things we've been talking about are issues that predated the pandemic. Now, mm -hmm. arguably, the aviation industry is one of the hardest hit industries um, due to the pandemic and the restriction on flights. Um, so what are some of the, the main issues now that are contributing to pilot stress um, and, and um, flight staff uh, stress, I guess? Uh, and what's the aviation industry doing about it? Well, up until COVID, our main focus was on pilots. We had wanted to extend the focus to other groups, but COVID afforded us an opportunity to do so. Uh, at the start of the pandemic, over the course of a weekend or two, we, we produced a booklet called Turbulent Times. And it, was, it wasn't a scientific piece. It was just a, a small little pamphlet with about 20 pages in it. Uh, if, if you want, we can give it to you and you can put it in the show notes. Uh, it was a booklet that we used some of the findings from our 2018 study where we looked at the factors that were helping pilots be resilient. And this was a booklet mainly for pilots to help them deal with, with COVID and, and the lockdown. That booklet has been downloaded over 50,000 times. It's been picked up by many airlines around the world, including British Airways, Qantas, uh, down your neck of the woods, uh, a lot of the main carriers around the world and distributed to their staff. 50,000 downloads. On foot of that, we were invited to work with the Flight Safety Foundation and we helped producing a, a second document, uh, the Aviation Professional's Guide to Wellbeing. And then on foot of that, we got picked up by EASA. And we've spent the last few months working with EASA and looking at how COVID is impacting people. We did a study in August. It was a snapshot three-week study. We got over 2,000 aviation workers. Most of them were pilots followed them by uh, cabin crew, engineers, and air traffic controllers were the four main groups. And we looked at several different things, but we knew that studies had been done in the general population and that certain sociodemic risk factors had been identified. The first one being age. Younger people were more likely to suffer than older people. Basically, COVID wasn't the older people's first rodeo. I, this is not my first crisis in aviation. I've been through 9-11, the volcanic ash, the crash of uh, 2018. Someone who's newer in the industry, you know, the bottom has fallen out of their world, basically. Uh, females were more likely to suffer than males in the general population. And uh, thirdly, those who were financially impacted 
by the pandemic, they were also more likely. So when people say we're all in the same boat, that's nonsense. We're not, we're all weathering the same storm, but some of us are in cruise liners and other people are hanging onto a piece of wood. They're drowning. So not all aviation workers are suffering the same. But when we looked at the different uh, groups, like pilots for uh, COVID, we found that 28% uh, of pilots, so, so that's the wrong figure that I'm looking at, uh, 25% of pilots were meeting the threshold for clinical depression. However, 58% of cabin crew were meeting the threshold for clinical depression compared to 17% of air traffic controllers. Now, when you look at those groups and you look at the breakdown, 90% of the pilots who took part in the study were male. 25% of the cabin crew were male. The age profile most of the cabin crew were younger. Most of the pilots were older. And then in terms of job impact, far more cabin crew have been laid off, whereas pilots have been either furloughed or put on reduced salary because when the industry picks up again, it'll be a lot easier to recruit and retrain cabin crew than it will to train a pilot. And then a lot of air traffic controllers, not all air traffic controllers, but a lot are employed by the state. So they were never gonna lose their job. They have security. So that's what I mean, that not everyone is experiencing the same levels of distress. And then even within the pilots or within the cabin crew, you can definitely see that those younger are the ones who are in a worse state and they need more support than the older ones. So what, what's the airline industry doing about it? Not a whole lot that I can see. Chicken soup. Yeah, so the, the response has been very poor, as we mentioned, you know, 23% of aviation workers saying that they've got supports. Now, you you have to frame this in terms of, you know, you know, what kind of supports would be acceptable and, you know, you know, you, if someone has lost their job and they do want their job back, what is the ability within the airline to provide that? You know, so that's that's one part of the conversation uh, to provide security. Um, but the second thing is the, 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 the nature of the supports. And is there is there a distance? Is it warm? How, how, how are supports provided? You know, so we did ask and around 600 um, people gave responses as, as, as to, sorry, 23% gave responses that they ha were having supports. Um, only 24% said that they were actually availing of those. But the kinds of supports they were getting were things like information bulletins as to what is going on you know, uh, with the airline. Um, information buttons are presentations around managing stress. Um, very, a very small number um, got one-to-one -one Zoom calls with their line managers, you know, to ask them how they were doing. So something kind of more warm and interpersonal, you know, and a kind of a reaching out. Um, so, you know, the, the response I would characterize as for those who've provided support has been very distant and kind of quite cold. It hasn't been very embraced or warm um, and supportive in the sense of that those kind of interpersonal dynamics where you talk to someone on an individual basis and you ask them well how are you doing you know um, and that doesn't ha have to happen for a very long period of time a few minutes of a, of a you know a line captain asking you how are you doing 
means a lot and um, brings with it a whole culture and a whole prioritization and a value scheme, you know, but this isn't happening and that's that's disappointing. Um, and I, I suppose airlines and uh, other aviation organizations are, you know, preoccupied with staying financially afloat and dealing with this crisis so you know they are behaving their organizations but they're behaving like individuals in crisis which is typically short-termist um, and you know we are all hoping for a recovery um, and a recovery will require healthy staff who have been supported and have been brought on the journey as a recovery journey not being left to crash and burn and then expected to be fit for work you know um, and come back with with zero scars you know so this is this is how they need to be thinking but of course it's short term it's because they're in crisis the house is on fire what do they do you know um, so you do have to moderate it with some understanding at an organization level but I, I, I wouldn't excuse what what is going on um, but you know this preventative and proactive approach just isn't happening you know and so even if you look at how they're reaching out or they are gathering evidence as to how their staff are doing they're not doing that you know like our survey is a piece of evidence around how, how, how aviation workers are doing in 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 during covid and it's only for a short uh, time stamp are aviation organizations talking to their staff are they surveying them are they asking them about sources of stress uh, where their well-being is at are they using coping mechanisms all these things that they could do they're not doing you know and they could do remotely quite easily um, so that I mean that that begs some questions about priorities. So there, there certainly is a way to go there. Yeah, yeah and you'd say you know they've got the short term thinking because of the financial impacts, obviously, on the aviation yeah. industry. But COVID's been around now for more than a year. The impacts, right? Yes, they've had they've had time to think about this now. Um, so what what does the future look like then in terms of the aviation industry and for the people working in it? Oof. I, I can't answer that question, Jason. Uh, I, I knew you were going to ask that question and I've spent a lot of time thinking about it and I don't know. There's so much uncertainty. I don't know which airlines are going to get through. I don't know what the future of aviation is going to look like. Uh, I don't know, will we ever see business travel again to the level we did? Uh, will there be such pent-up demand for holidays that we'll be absolutely floored? I just don't know. I don't know. But what I do know is that whenever we do get back flying, it's going to be a very vulnerable and broken workforce that's coming back in. So I just hope the airlines have a plan for that. I don't know what that plan is. I haven't yeah. seen a plan, but I hope there's a plan because they're going to need it. Mm. You know, and like, even if you just park the uncertainty around, you know, COVID and having, you know, going back to the levels of passengers and numbers of flights that we had prior to COVID. So looking at the kind of financial side, if you say, well, are our airlines going to behave in the way British Airways have, have recently behaved and prioritizing well-being and talking about a change in values and the leadership expressing this, I think the future depends upon that. I think it depends on a change in culture. Um, but the thing is, like any relationship, you know, you know, you to trust and to have credibility, you need to earn it. 
and the stock is very low at the moment. So, you know, they haven't earned credibility or trust by how some of the behaviours during COVID and prior to COVID. So it's a big ask, but so they really need to, 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 to move with this and, and, and change culture and have an appetite for it. And I think, and, and link it into the actual business model, you know, and how, and how operations work and really look at that. And I think the, it's, it's, it's not a question as to, you know, like how individual airlines and will they cope. It's the aviation industry. Are they coming together and coming together with the regulator and with all the vested parties and insurers and everyone to actually look at this and look at protecting staff and protecting safety and having well-being at the centre um, and, and dealing with um, a workforce. So the human capital, you know, that, that, has, that has been um, eroded to an extent by COVID, but also um, a human capital where 60% are using coping strategies, where 68% have said they would look for help if they had a problem, who have an interest in their health and want to protect their health and also want to protect their families and have a job you know so you know there's um a motivation there a huge intrinsic motivation for staff to be healthy and have jobs as well as there is for organizations to be successful it's just to figure out well how does success look with well-being at its center what does that what is success in that sense um, and that that needs to be unpacked um, but I think it's a question for other industries um, as well not just aviation you know um, but obviously aviation is particularly affected so, Joan, that um, leads quite nicely into the next um, question that I wanted to ask you. And you, so your background is in philosophy. Um, would you like to make some comments on the ethics of um, psychological health and safety in the aviation industry? Yeah, I suppose if my main point is looking at roles and responsibilities. So in ethics, where you look at a value basis and you look at duties, um, and this has been um, a thorny issue to understand what are the roles and responsibilities. And there's a few things I would like to point to. Uh, so the Tripartite Labour Coalition. So they look at, um, you know, responsible concepts of responsible work and the ethics being that organisations don't just have responsibilities to their shareholders, they have responsibilities to their staff, but also to society. So this goes back to the problem framing and looking at the, the impact of well-being issues on aviation workers' families and on aviation worker communities. Okay. The second thing is around the triple bottom line. So, you know, all work needs to deliver benefits and all business and organizations need to behave in the context of the triple bottom line. So that's looking at, you know, people, profit and planet. Now, it's a tricky one for aviation organizations when you bring in the planet. And I know there's lots that have been doing to improve fuel and these kinds of things, but particularly around protecting people, um, you know, and having a balance across these three areas of benefits, you know, so it seems the direction is, you know, more around profit than people and less around planet. So if if you look at psychological health and well-being and you look at uh, changing health and well-being and safety culture you need to put people at the center and the ethics is about you know where what is the starting point and, and how are you framing the problem and how are you looking at responsibilities and how is that being divvied up um, and and then the last thing that I would look at you know um, like we're very interested in well-being but in particular psychological well-being um, and looking at quality of life and 
you know, the homework interface and those aspects. And the OECD, uh, you know, has looked at um, one of the factors for a quality of life is, is the management of the, the, the homework interface. And we would say that there's a whole aspect of social justice built into this. So you have the homework interface, you have the right to work, a protected job, safety and work, all these aspects. Um, and that there's a kind of a social justice dimension to that. And that needs to be understood and framed. So when you're looking at, you know, all aspects of well-being, you need to, to frame it from this social justice and decent work perspective. And I know they are international label organisations since 1998 have promoted this decent work agenda. I don't think aviation organisations have been listening to this. And I think now when you look at um, psychosocial risk factors, some aspects of the decent work agenda are in there. When you look at autonomy and latitude and workload um, and protection of health and uh, protection from psychosocial stress. But, you know, really look at well, what does decent work mean i have huge concerns around the growth of the gig economy and um one of the things that we look at gig workers who are really suffering from massive psychosocial stress from lack of job security uh, and from uncertainty in their work and this is moving in some of what we see with covid for aviation workers is precisely this issue you know, um, and I wonder um, when there is a recovery where there's a strong focus on profit and recovering profit, will there be a less of a focus on people and aspects of the job that link to decent work? And will there be a movement towards kind of gig worker models? And this is where you need to look at the business model and how it works. And so all of this needs to be intertwined. You can't just have occupational health and safety, you know, and safety management um, on one hand, and then have separate, look separately at flight operations processes and look at rostering and then look again separately at how you train people you know all of it needs to be put together and linked in with the business model um, and that's challenging but that's the change that needs to happen and that needs that needs to happen within occupational health and safety as well um, and how the ethical frame for it um, with people at the center thank you joan that's a very um, comprehensive overview you're welcome. <laughs> that, that probably leads nicely then into my next question for you both, which is what are your hopes for the future of workplace mental health within the aviation industry? I might put that one to you, Paul. Um, I do really hope that psychological health and safety is taken seriously in aviation. I, I don't think health and safety physical health and safety has been a great concern for pilots, possibly for cabin crew when they look at the ergonomics and manual handling and lifting bags and stuff like that. But pilots, we've never really been given a look in. But I think now the time is has come for psychological health and safety to be looked at. Yeah, and, and how would that look, Paul, do you think? And, well, I, I think if you look at the... The 13 factors, if you were to start with the Canadian standard, or and then when ISO 45003 hopefully comes out, if you look at those factors and start redesigning the work. Now, as I said, some of the things just won't change. We, we will always have long haul. We'll always have jet lag. That, that's just part and parcel. But how we interact and, and how the, the role of what we do is valued and how we interact with our management, the levels of engagement, and the organizational culture the culture has got to change i think in terms of psychological health and safety the culture is rotten it's rotten to the core and that needs to change from the top down 
Yeah. And ideally, just going back to it, I mean, your question was around like mental health, but to look at well-being uh, and mental health as part of that. And, and equally, this this biopsychosocial approach that we've been taking that, you know, like we, we, we've seen that, you know, uh, you know, sleep has a massive effect on mood and uptake of adaptive behaviors. So you have to look at the relationship across these pillars, you know, um, and, you know, psychosocial factors are very important, but just this big picture. And I think one of the benefits of what we're doing is having this lived experience approach and looking at all these different aspects and the interplay across factors um, and I think that really needs to be done um, and um, I, and I think it can be done and um, and we've got quite positive feedback about it uh, about its applicability so um, but looking at um, positive well-being as well you know and who argue for this they look for a positive definition of well-being and that we you know we're not taking we're a, a glass half empty approach you know um, and I think we need to remind ourselves and this is partly the language we use and the language needs to call out mental health mental distress but it also needs to call out positive well-being positive psychological well-being and uh, things like behavior around um, organizational behavior like are is an organization warm and do they care and how they behave you know and the characteristics um, and really look at that because that impacts upon mental health those behaviors um, it's a relationship like any other as I say you know um, and I, I, I think, think the lived... sorry John go ahead go ahead no I, I think the lived experience has to be considered as opposed to the perceived or the imagined experience. Uh, I look at fatigue in aviation and how fatigue is managed. In Europe, we have a set of rules that were supposedly science-based. Back, I think it was about 2011, 2012, a panel of scientists were brought together by the European Commission to devise a, a science-based set of rules. Uh, by the time the rules were finally decided upon after all the stakeholders had their, their input. What we had was a bastardized set of science-based rules that the some of the scientists, in fact, actually stood back from and said, we're not standing over them, that they, would, they wouldn't even stand by the rules. So that's what we have. We have these pseudo-science-based set of rules for fatigue. And we can't have that same approach with psychological health and safety. I think it has to be real evidence. It has to be the lived experience, work as done, not work as imagined. All right, well, that um, probably gives me a hint as to what you're both going to um, respond to the next question, which is um, what words of advice do you have for professionals who would like to work in the field of, of psych health and safety in aviation? Okay, I might take this one. So I suppose it's kind of really a wrap up and a lot that we have said, you know, so the first thing is, you know, look at how you frame problems, you know, and, you know, engage with stakeholders and not just necessarily those stakeholders who are realizing directly those problems or the consequences of those problems. Take a multi-stakeholder perspective, you know. So again, a people-centric approach, but looking at all the people that are relevant. Um, um, so be careful framing problems. Another thing is to, to gather evidence, you know, and you can only um, change something when you've gathered evidence about it and you can measure what's going on 
want and you can measure the benefits of change. And if you want to affect change in an organization, you need to start with something small and demonstrate the benefits of what you've done. So this requires measurement. So no matter what you do, you must measure. Um, and just again, like, I mean, we, we, we keep reiterating this, but I can't emphasize enough uh, this biopsychosocial approach and looking at the lived experience. But the last thing, and this is a very standard thing in human factors, not just to engage stakeholders, but to learn from implementation. So you learn about the problem as well as the solution when you implement something. Okay, so we're, we spend a lot of time framing problems and we do need to do that and really get, get deep into well, what is the problem. But then you still still not need to move to looking at solutions. And when you move to solutions, you do learn, learn more about the problem, you know, because the solutions tell you why the problem exists or why something isn't going to work as a solution because of some other aspects of the problem, maybe that you haven't uncovered. So you learn so much from implementation and um, there's a huge opportunity there. And people run a mile from implementation because they think we can't implement something until we've really solved it or we know we've done the right thing, you know, and we'll alienate stakeholders because we'll show ourselves to be unreliable or that we, you know, we've come up with something that is misguided. And um, it's in fact, if you look at everything as a learning opportunity and as a way of getting evidence to improve something, uh, then you won't be scared of implementation. So sometimes as an exercise in persuading other people about this, uh, about the lessons learned from implementation. Um, but good luck to anyone. It's a wonderful area and valuable area to work in. And one thing that we found, and it's come up in our research, um, having a purpose in life has a massive contribution to your well-being. And the work that we do, um, and we've had various different uh, struggles over the years, uh, gives huge purpose. So it's a reason to wake up in the morning um, and do something positive. So working in this area, you know, you will deliver value. You know, you'll be doing something that will help others. Um, and, you know, isn't that a good thing? Isn't that um, a positive? So um, I think it's a very positive career. And, you know, um, working with people, um, everyone says it's, it's great to work with people, even within the difficult times, you know, and someone working in this space, if they're doing their job well um, and are supported by the organization, they're dealing with people and they're, you know, whether they're interviewing people and learning about their lived experience, they're with people, for people, designing with and for people. And that's, that's, that's what you want. That's a reason to get up in the morning, as they say. Yeah, no, purpose is is so important. Um, that's one of the reasons Joel came and worked with us, of course. Um, Not that I didn't have purpose before when I was with the regulator. It's just a, maybe more purpose now. Di different direction of purpose, <laughs> potentially. But uh, yeah. in our own research, we found that people with higher, uh, you know, sense of purpose uh, were much less inclined to be anxious or depressed uh, yeah. and had higher levels of subjective well-being as well. So yeah. purpose seems to be a really uh, fun. Yeah, but you you have to moderate that with expectations because I've been, we, we always say that we're in this for the long game and in any kind of change program, it's been a very long game. So you kind of want to go with it and have resilience yourself because you've, you've plenty of barriers and particularly in the space, if you're really looking at well-being in a deep way and looking at culture and you're not just providing the yoga, you know, you're going to be dealing with barriers and plenty of them and you need to be highly motivated and you you, you need to believe in the value of your work and be prepared to accept a certain amount of failure in the sense that organizations are slow to change and you need to kind of find ways around and it'll be difficult and you have to navigate that with other people. Um, yeah, and, so, it, and it certainly yeah. helps to be violently optimistic as well, I've been told. <laughs> yeah, optimism is good.
<laughs> well, great guys. Um, it's been such a fantastic chat with both of you. You're both like, obviously very uh, understanding and experienced within the aviation industry and your research is obviously bleeding edge uh, in the industry as well. So uh, it's been a real pleasure having both of you uh, on the show today. Thank you. That's very gracious of you. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure too, guys. Thanks very much. So um, that's it for the, the episode today, listeners. Um, don't forget, uh, if you want to watch the video and see the lovely Joan and Paul um, on YouTube, you can check it out on the Flourish DX channel. Uh, also, there's, there's a heap of clips that we're going to be able to pull out of this, I think. Uh, Paul did have a couple of juicy bits that we'll have to drop into LinkedIn and you'll be able to find them on the Flourish DX LinkedIn page. <laughs> he gives us, a, a, I think, a little bit of a scared look, Joan. <laughs> some a little bit startled yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, but please check out the uh, the juicy bits that we share on the uh, flourish tx linkedin page uh, also you'll find that joelle and myself are very active on linkedin so feel free to reach out to us and i see paul like dropping in a few of uh, his his words on, on linkedin as well so you probably he's actually a good one to follow if you don't connect with him directly so uh, that's it again listeners and thank you for today and and we'll catch you next episode You've been listening to the Psych Health and Safety Podcast. To stay up to date with the latest on psychological injury prevention, follow Flourish DX on LinkedIn and subscribe to the Psych Health and Safety Podcast at www.psychhealthandsafety.com.